Okay, we get started then. Uh, good evening, history lovers, and welcome to the latest History Ireland Head School. And it's a great pleasure to be back here in uh, Liberty Hall. Uh, I'm your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland magazine, uh, to which I presume you are all subscribers. And if you aren't, you can rectify that omission uh, with Una McConville uh, at the back of the hall afterwards. Now, topic tonight is the cause of labour, uh, question mark, the 1918 general strike against conscription. On the 23rd of April 1918, exactly 100 years ago, the Irish uh, Trade Union Congress and the ITGW in particular called a one-day general strike against the imposition of conscription and brought the country to a standstill. While it was the largest strike to date in Irish history, it was uniquely fully endorsed by both the employers and the Catholic Church. Support in heavily industrialised but unionist-dominated Belfast was conspicuous by its absence. To discuss these contradictions and other related matters, uh, we have uh, on the left here, Porrig Yates, uh, author of, amongst others, A City in Civil War, Dublin 1921-24. That's the third uh, of Porrig's uh, Dublin trilogy. Uh, on my right, uh, Sarah Ann Buckley of NUI Galway. And to her right, uh, Tom Morrissey, uh, whose latest book is The Life and Times of Daniel Murray, esteemed Archbishop of Dublin, 1823 to 1852. And then finally, on my left, I have uh, Ethel Buckley, uh, Deputy General Secretary of SIPTU, uh, who is going to bring a, a contemporary trade union uh, perspective <coughs> on the discussion. Now, Porik, I want to start with you just as a sort of a, a control. We're, we're, we're talking here about conscription, but I think we need to establish what was the norm in terms of British Army recruiting in Ireland generally, and maybe we could talk about the city here, because this city always supplied uh, men to the, to the British Army. Like, so what was different about 1918? That's the question I'll, I'll come to eventually. Yeah. Well, basically Dublin was the main single recruiting uh, centre in Ireland, and I think more recent research has shown again it was urban, working class, uh, people, mainly unskilled and semi-skilled, who would have been recruited to the army. Uh, Dublin would have been the largest centre up until the First World War, when there was a huge in influx of Belfast, uh, both Catholic and Protestants in Belfast. But between them, Belfast and Dublin in the First World War, I think would have accounted for <coughs> over half of all British Army recruits. Um, partly because there was a social stigma in uh, rural Ireland. Uh, you know, people who got a local girl into trouble or who helped the poor box were often given the option you either join the army or the navy or you go to prison. So if you um, joined the army there was always the assumption that you'd done something wrong. Well, it, not, <laughs> not in Dublin. In Dublin it was, I mean, most of my family served in the British Army for a couple of generations. So it was perfectly normal. And in fact it was seen as uh, almost an advantage because most of the employers were Protestant and unionists. So if you, uh, all other things being equal, if you went for a job and someone else went for a job who wasn't, hadn't an army record, uh, and yet didn't have a dishonourable discharge, you, you might well get it because you would be considered more reliable and also to be more disciplined and more subject, you know, good for right. timekeeping yeah. and so on. So there was that tradition even before the First World War. And then during the war itself it continued, but then Belfast became the biggest single uh, recruiting centre, followed by Dublin. And then two things happened. One was in 1916 the British authorities decided you, they would exempt Irish people, Irish men in particular, <coughs> I should say, who went to work in England or Scotland uh, in war industries. So you could then go there safely and you wouldn't be dragged off to join the army. And those figures then, the army recruitment started to fall and employment in war industries began to rise. And the other thing was, 
the penny dropped with a lot of people. Because you're Irish, you can volunteer. And if you're a volunteer, you can pick what you go into. So if you were a volunteer in 1918, you joined something like the Royal Flying Corps Maintenance, uh, you know, you wouldn't join the infantry mm. because mm. you'd learn a trade and you wouldn't be shot at by anybody. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the patterns changed, you know, as a result. Can I just throw a, a counterfactual here? Um, a bit early for that, you might say, but could, what, what, what would have happened if conscription had been introduced immediately in 1914? Well, well, it, it was only introduced, remember, in, in Britain. Britain in I, I know that. Well, we'll so, say if, if, yeah. at the same time as Britain, right? Or before the 1916 rising, let's put that, that's what I'm getting at. It's a good question, but I don't know the answer, Tommy. I'm right, right. Um, okay. But it's a good question. I think there would have been resistance. I, I think in Britain as well as in <clears> Ireland. <throat> nobody, well, apart, the First World War was unusual in that upper class and middle class people did actually join, volunteer in larger numbers than working class people in Britain. It was seen as your patriotic duty. Um, so uh, we, we, here, I don't know. I know Redmond appealed for... Well, the Irish volunteers, of course, were founded, yeah. you know, much before 1914, and they were, they were certainly geared to defend the country against anything coming from outside. Mm. Um, but uh, I, I couldn't see them, you know, supporting any kind of conscription. Once you f start forcing Irish people to do things, you tend to get a, a counter-reaction. Right, right. So I would, Im I would imagine that there would be a strong uh, anti-conscription movement. Certainly the, I could imagine the church and people like Dr. Walsh and so on opposing it. Mm. But what, what was different about conscription compared to volunteering? Maybe, Sarah, I bring you in here because I know you, you were going to do a bit of homework for us on, on the situation in Australia, right, which, which had, you know, yeah. had a similar anti-conscription movement. Well, I suppose in one way, anti-conscription isn't anti-war, which is what we've seen. So uh, people are volunteering. Um, the situation in Australia is that uh, whilst people are conscripted, conscripted and men, uh, to something that's happening in the Commonwealth, when it's outside the Commonwealth, uh, they needed to pass a referendum or a plebiscite. So the first is in 1916, October, and that uh, it's very bitter, really, the campaigns. And a lot of, I guess, um, the issues that we talk about tonight would probably come in to do with the women's movement, the labor movement, uh, the unions. Um, so this fails. And uh, a year later, they go again, basically because um, of losses uh, during the year. And again, it fails with an even larger majority. So what we see is that in Australia, people are actually uh, turning more and more against conscription. Um, but there's lots of divisions there. But, that, but you made a very important point there. That does not necessarily mean they're anti-war. No, okay. and there are That's what volunteers. Out here. There's a thing about conscription, it seems to me, is regarded as breaking the contract whatever that contract is, you know, for want of mm. a better term, right? That this idea that, that you're, you're, you're... And remember, of course, um, that the right to bear arms would have been one of the things denied under the penal laws. Like, this idea that it was a mark of your sort of citizenship or subjectship, if that's the correct term, within the United Kingdom, that you're allowed to volunteer. Yeah. So just as a, there's an interesting point there made by Bill O'Brien when he was talking to the trade unions... Um, in 1920, or at least in 1918, 20th of April, before the strike. And he made the point that nobody, no government has a right to tell an individual that you can kill so-and-so. It's, it's up to his own conscience to decide okay. in that situation. And he said the same thing would apply if it was a native government telling us 
because they, they also have no right to tell the individual that you can kill Joe or Jack. Is that, but is that the basis? Yeah, I was going to ask you this question, Tom, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, like, the church was not anti the war, was it? Uh, uh, I mean, some, some, some churchmen were. Okay. Walsh was very strongly. Because I know that some high-powered French clerics came over. Oh, yes. Promoting the war. That's right. Promoting recruitment, <clears throat> right? I mean, they what, didn't what get, sort of a reception did they get? They get much of a, a very poor reception. <laughs> okay, a frosty reception then, yeah. even amongst the, the, their oh, own oh, like, among, oh, yes. uh, bishops yes. and oh, clergy yes. and whatever, yeah. They were resented coming over, I think. Right. Yeah. So the, it's, the issue then is that conscription is seen as forcing people to do what they should do according to their conscience. Is that the, the issue? Uh, forcing them to do something they didn't want to do. But, but I think one of the problems in Ireland was people did want to get guns and, and part of the normali- what they called the normalisation process for home rule was they lifted the embargo on arms imports so people could import guns into Ireland and during the lockout quite a lot of employers um, who in their role as justices of the peace issued firearms to strike breakers um, mm-hmm. who used them. Not fortunately they didn't kill many people, they didn't kill anyone apart from Alicia Brady yeah. but they did use them and people were injured by, yeah. by gunfire. So, so the, I don't think in Ireland you can say we're a very pacifistic nation. Um, there were people oh, no. quite ready to have a go to each other, um, yeah. uh, both on the, if you like, the orange and the nationalist side. Yeah. And the Cat- so we were talking about conscription side. when they're being sure. forced or obliged to, right. and they're reacting against that. Can I just, just pivot the discussion here in a slightly different direction? Um, uh, maybe Park, you again, and this is, is that's because the trade union movement is front and centre of this, right? Now, this is only five years after the, the lockout. You know, which was a catastrophic defeat uh, for the trade union movement. What was its state of health uh, in 1918? It was very robust. Um, now some people put that down to the martyrdom of Connolly, which certainly helped revival of the movement. But I mean, as I, I know there's people here probably disagree with me, but I mean, James Connolly was a, a disaster as a trade union organiser. And it, the membership of the transport union uh, it almost ceased to exist. They were down to somewhere between three and a half thousand and five thousand members by 1916. We don't actually have proper records for that year because Connolly was too busy doing other things. Um, but then you have this remarkable revival under Tom Foran and, and particularly Bill O'Brien, who was a, an organizer of genius. Um, uh, but the other big factor, apart from the 1916 rising, and the one that we tend to forget is the British government did something which they only did in wartime, they did in two world wars, they recognised unions. And the deal was, it was a contract basically, they said uh, union, people have a right to join unions and be represented by unions, but the quid pro quo is you can't go on strike, not in war sensitive industries. But what they did then was if employers and unions couldn't agree a deal, uh, as they'd appoint an independent chair, like the old SEA system that we had in this country, which we inherited from the British, basically, um, and they'd knock heads together, and if they couldn't agree something, then the government chair would lay down the law and say, this is what the deal is, and everyone would have to accept it. I think it's no coincidence that between the appointment of the Agricultural Wages Board in 19, at the end of 19, October 1917 and the end of 1918, more, about 100,000 agricultural labourers joined unions, mainly the That's transport right. union. And the movement went from having 100,000 members across Ireland in 1913 to having uh, 270,000 by 1919. So, so it, 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 the trade union movement is in pretty strong shape. Very then. strong. Right, shape. okay. But divided. Mm. Okay. Ethel, to bring you in like, just a, as, a, as a, 
uh, present uh, trade union activist, um, how does the modern trade, trade union movement perceive the, the anti-conscription general strike? Well, I suppose just to go back to what Podrick was saying, um, this, this period, you know, 1917 to 1918, is a, is a time of extraordinary growth for the transport union. Um, in Francie Devine's book, Organising the Union, he, he says that in December 1917, the transport union had 25,000 members, and exactly a year later had 67,800 members. Now, for anyone <coughs> who's a trade union organiser, that is a phenomenal level of growth. And I think really what you're seeing is mainly, is, is, is possibly... This, the emergence now of the OBU, the one big union. Mm -hmm. So where the transport union is going from being primarily a ports based or mm -hmm. ports and docks based, certainly Eastern seaboard union, uh, you're seeing the transport union move into the Midlands um, and have a stronghold in the Midlands for a long time afterwards and into really sweep across the country in, in extraordinary growth. Mm -hmm. And as Podrick has said, um, whatever you might think of the organising skills of some of the people you mentioned under Foran and Kennedy and O'Brien. Don't um, forget Seamus Hughes. Yeah, yes. Okay. Well, this is one. This is an extraordinary time, and and and, and uh, the union is moving into industrial sectors and the agricultural, the agricultural sector. But I suppose to go back to your your kind of original question, since over the last ten years, really, the trade union movement has been quite reflective, <laughs> given it, what was happening in our movement a hundred years ago, um, and this year. Uh, I suppose it causes us to reflect on 1918, and 1918 was quite a divisive time in the trade union movement. So while there was considerable support for the anti-conscription strike in the south, in the northeast of the country, that was not that was not the case. Mm -hmm. And and really, the, the the very interesting discussion I think that's going on contemporarily in the trade union movement is to draw parallels with somewhat of a similar issue that's confronting the trade union movement now, which is the, um, the, the whole issue of Brexit. So we have um, the trade union movement, um, um, you know, divides after partition, and we don't, we don't unify as a single Congress again until the late 1950s, 1959. Yeah. And we are a single Congress now across the island Something that's not actually regularly uh, credited, I think, is that in the European Union, in fact, I don't know any other country where there's a single trade union congress operating across two jurisdictions, mm -hmm. two separate you know, leg legislative jurisdictions. And it's an incredible, if you think about it, it is an incredible achievement for the Irish Congress of Trade Unions and for the trade union movement to stay unified during the decades of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And, and the trade union movement is really uniquely placed, I suppose, uniquely really, uh, the largest civil society organisation on the island, but uniquely placed in representing the views of workers and working people who consider themselves to be, or who are by nationality Irish, who are by nationality British, or who are now increasingly by nationality a whole range of nations who have uh, who have come to, to live here. And um, we have, uh, in very challenging circumstances, uh, stayed relatively unified on the Brexit question as a movement um, uh, in the Irish Congress of Trade Unions opposed Brexit, and of the 24 unions that operate in the north of Ireland, a mixture of unions headquartered in the north, in Belfast, uh, in Dublin and in London, 
of the 24 unions, um, only three actually were, were, were in favour of um, uh, leaving the European Union. Um, and, and I suppose, it, it, just, just to go back to your question, in looking at 1918, it makes us, um, how divided we were then, I suppose it makes us proud actually of the um, achievements of Congress in unifying since uh, the 1960s. I want to come back to the, 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 the unionist you know, working class issue and conscription in a few minutes. Um, before I go to the next question, though, I just want to remind the audience, in case you haven't been at a hedge school before, of the format here. And I'm, I'm up here asking these people a few difficult questions. But if you have a few difficult questions of your own, uh, feel free to put your hand up and uh, contribute to the discussion. Uh, so we don't just have a Q&A at the end. So if anyone wants to jump in with a point, you know, don't, don't hold back. Um, Tom, I want to come back to you, though, just before we... we, we, we drift off in the trade union direction. <coughs> I mean, there's that other big organisation involved here, which is the Catholic Church itself. Because I think one of the problems is when people look back uh, at this period, they assume that the Catholic Church, you know, was, was always influential and powerful and so on. But, like, this is less than a century after Catholic emancipation. That's so, right. uh, just a similar question that I asked to Porik, uh, what was the state of health of the Catholic Church at this stage, in, in Dublin in particular? Well, outwardly, it looked pretty strong in, in terms of <coughs> attendance at at Mass, at the sacraments, and so forth. Um, and in, ma in many ways, it, the Catholic Church in Ireland, as you know, has been tended to be identified with the majority population. And uh, national and Catholic, to some extent, went together. <clears throat> obviously, when it comes to uh, underground organizations or illegal organizations, like the IRB, there's a split. But uh, by and large, the, uh, the influence of the bishops would have been very strong. Uh, they wouldn't always have been united amongst themselves. Um, they tried to speak as one voice um, when they met in, in Maynooth once or twice a year. But um, they had great difficulty with people like Dr. O'Dwyer of Limerick, who tended to be a, a one-man band in many ways and a very powerful one. Uh, when he took a nationalist side. Um, but um, I think the fact that the conference themselves were very anxious that the, the bishops would be agreeing with them. In fact, once they had met and the bishops had agreed with, with where the conference was going, uh, Lord Mayor O'Neill is re 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 um, recorded as saying, uh, well, the... Uh, now that we're all together, the, uh, the, the conscription is over, it's, it's, it's dead. Um, because the, the, the power of the, the bishops joined to the political power at the time of United Ireland, all the different parties joining together, seemed completely in, uh, unbeatable no matter what happened. And um, there's another ingredient there I'd like to put in, but well, it's it no, is something to the church. Yeah, because sorry, what, one of the yeah. one of the very powerful forces that's not very often mentioned in terms of upsetting the government in, about conscription was the fact that the the secretary of the police union um, made it known to the conference that his members would support the conference uh, if the conscription law was enforced. And he passed on a leaflet to the conference, which was um, a leaflet brought out by a meeting of the Catholic 
the Catholic policemen of Ireland. And they announced that we are, we are three quarters of the force and we are prepared to go on strike if the, uh, the law of conscription is enforced. And that's a very powerful message to have to, to come to any government. But have the police on strike. If the, if the police won't right. enforce yeah. the law, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. And especially then when the unions are crippling the country as well. You can't move anything, you know. Tom, I want to come back to you on, on Archbishop Walsh shortly, right? Sure. But I, I wanted to go to, to um, Sarah and maybe Ethel as well, because there's another um, element to this whole thing, and that's the, the women's movement. Now, I'll, I'll leave you define what the women's movement is at that stage, because oh, yeah. I'm going to ask the same question. What, what was its state of health? Because it's, it's there okay. uh, in, this, this, uh, in the mix as well. Well, I won't define the whole movement, but what I will say is that it's it's obviously diverse. Um, we have pacifism, nationalism, unionism, uh, socialism. And what's interesting is throughout the First World War period, there is anti-recruitment. So it's not that it's up until 1918 and then uh, all the sentiments are expressed. Uh, women like Margaret Connery and Hannah Shee Skeffenden are uh, anti-recruitment. And one of the big debates in the women's movement is about relief work for the war and suffrage work. So whether women should participate. So this kind of sets the scene for divisions that will uh, or could come later. Um, and probably what's uh, unprecedented with the anti-conscription um, crisis uh, is actually that there is such uh, support. So you have these groups coming together. Um, now, you do have tensions between nationalism and unionism in regard to the women's movement, but otherwise you have quite a lot of uh, support. And um, I think that that's very important. And how we see it expressed, uh, obviously on the 27th of April, um, no, a number of women promised not to fill the places of men. Um, who would be conscripted and then the really big event is on uh, the 9th of June, Lawn Amon. Uh, yep. Just before you go on to Lawn Amon, that seems to be a, a very uh, glaring contradiction because usually when historians write about the First World War they see that the, it, it, it has it's a big boost for the rights of women, the women's movement generally, because they're getting into employment, they're getting out into society, right? Mm. But here we have nationalist women saying, no, don't take the job of you know someone who goes to the front. You know what I mean? In a sense, yep. they're cutting off their nose despite their face, like, are they? Um, well, are in they? one way, there are so many opportunities that uh, women in, in Cumanamon and in other organisations do avail of during the First World War when it comes to training and when it comes to participation in committees, in uh, local government, in organising. So even though they are supporting anti-conscription, that doesn't mean that they're not benefiting in other ways from mm -hmm. um, their participation uh, at this time. Um, I know these debates over feminism or, or anti-conscription, uh, I suppose if you look, and we mentioned Australia, and I guess it's another example of how women in Australia were split. So those that were pro and those that were against, what was used both times was their relationship with their husbands and with their sons. So when it came to pro-conscription, what you have is arguments that women need to, uh, you know, encourage their their husbands and their sons to, you know, do their duty. Anti-conscription again, you have women. The focus is on, um, I guess, their their families. In in Ireland, what you see with the women's movement is there does seem to be an agreement that this is different, as I say, to volunteering. 
So this is, there is a difference there. Um, so I think really the, the labor movement, the trade union movement and the women's movement are very important in this anti-conscription uh, grouping. <clears throat> Ethel, you want to talk to us about the, the, this law on the mon um, and the women's pledge? Yeah. Um, so women trade unionists and working class women um, in the Irish Women Workers Union and the Citizen Army, um, for whatever reason, decided that they wanted to uh, have an additional pledge. Um, and that pledge, as others have said, was to not fill the jobs of men if men uh, were conscripted. And uh, um, I suppose what's, what's important for the trade union movement or those of us within the trade union movement that like to recall the role of women at this time um, and the role of the Irish Women Workers Union is the, the Women Workers Union has left Liberty Hall now at this stage and is in Great Denmark Street in its own building. Um, and, and they organise with Common Amon, with the Citizen Army, for um, significant demonstrations around the country. I think we know most about the Dublin demonstration on the 9th of June, which, has, which they called then and, is, and, and we now refer to as Lawn Amon. Um, the Irish Women Workers Union organised a, a major march, had about 2,400 people um, on the march, marched from Great Denmark Street to City Hall where there was an additional pledge book. Um, and on that day and the following days, uh, apparently up to 40,000 women signed that pledge book and tens of thousands of women signed pledges around the country. And to, to remember the role of women in the uh, anti-conscription campaign, the Irish Women Workers Union, and uh, this is my plug, which <laughs> get it in, get I never tend to get in. As a good, you know, I, w I couldn't call myself trade union organiser otherwise. Um, the Irish Women Workers Union Commemorative Committee, which is the coming together of a number of us um, in, in the trade union movement and academia and activists and others who, who are kind of insistent <laughs> that the role of the Women Workers Union isn't forgotten and the role of people like Helena Maloney and Louis Bennett in the movement isn't forgotten. Um, we're going to reenact that, um, that march uh, on the 9th of June and we're also running and there's a box there for people who are physically here we're, we're running a competition and the competition is based on the original pledge the wording of the original pledge is, uh, is on these documents here but um, it was a 59 word pledge and we're running a competition for students and uh, trade unionists, trade union groups, organisations to um, write or construct or come up with what would be an appropriate pledge, women's pledge for 2018? Mm -hmm. 2018 is a big year for women. <laughs> um, and, 20, and, and I would say in 100 years time, there'll be people on a panel talking about 2018 um, uh, and, and what, I suppose primarily, what's going to happen in the referendum in May, for example, um, in the entries that are already coming in, that's coming up, the issue of the referendum on the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. Mm. Another issue that's coming up in the entries is the quality of women's work. The very issue that the Irish Women Workers Union was established to deal with, the differential in the quality between women's work and men's work, the, the pesky issue of the gender pay gap, which um, <laughs> will not go away. There is legislation since the 1970s on equal pay for work of equal value, <clears throat> but there's still something in the region of a 16% pay differential between men and women for doing the same work. 
another issue that's coming up exactly an issue that um, the Women Workers Union was organising around was um, caring, child caring, mm. child care responsibilities, balancing work um, and the work that women do unpaid in the home. Um, and, and another issue which is surprising us somewhat, but you know, maybe it's not surprising as well, is uh, the issues, um, it might have surprised women a hundred years ago, but the issues that migrant women are confronting in our labour market and in our society, uh, particularly migrant women who are um, the victims of direct provision. So they are the kind of topics that are starting to come up. Uh, you can see a kind of a generational difference. Young women very interested in this referendum, being very politicised by the referendum. And I suppose what the trade union movement would hope is that that kind of politicisation that's happening around identity politics or reproductive rights politics, would that that would continue on to more of a, an interest in social justice generally and in class politics and trade unionism and uh, hopefully result in people um, joining unions again because there is a real issue with young people um, not connecting with the trade union movement that we're working hard to tackle. Um, so yeah, there, there's this competition. People can find out more about it on the, on the womenworkersunion.ie website mm -hmm. and on, on the Women Workers Commemorative Committee Facebook page. Okay, we all got that now. We all <laughs> took notes of that. Now, I want to just bring this back to 1918, uh, Porik. Uh, we, 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 in the discussion here, we, we may look at the, the, the influence of the, the Bolsheviks uh, and the Bolshevik Revolution, this whole situation. I mean, one immediate effect is that the Bolshevik Revolution knocks Russia out of the war, right? Uh, so my question is, how serious was the situation facing the Allies on the Western Front in spring 1918? I was very serious. Um, recruitment in Ireland uh, by March 1918 was down to 80 recruits from the entire country a week. Um, the the British losses, I don't about the French, but the British losses between the start of the offensive in early March and the end of April was something like uh, 330,000 men. Uh, the average losses over that period in the war would have been about 60, 70,000. So okay. the huge difference. And they are desperate for men. Um, and up until then, the British government, we hear about boy soldiers, and there were boy soldiers who you know, claimed they're older than they really were. But British government policy in the war was not to send teenagers to the front. And now in 1918, for the first time, they were going to have to send 18 and 19-year-olds to the front. And also, at the other end of the age spectrum, they're going to have to send 50-year-olds to the front. Now, 50 isn't that old today, but in those days, someone 50 was fairly decrepit. But this is... But this is... So that's the... Uh, yeah. the and then you've also got the... There was a, a big petition in, in, um, in the Houses of Parliament uh, with, I think, 100,000 signatures on it, including 46 MPs, demanding why are the Irish not doing their fair share? And why, that, why weren't they doing their fair share? I mean, <laughs> what was the justification... For, for not extent, I mean, obviously it was because of the political situ yeah, situation, yeah. but how was that sold to British public opinion? Well, it wasn't. Bad that that, that, was, that right. was the problem. Yeah. Okay. The, the British, the, you know, feeling, and that was true in the trade union movement as well, as you we can see from some of the correspondence uh, that when Bill O'Brien wrote to Irish trade unions saying, we want your support, and some were saying, how dare you, you know, you're stabbing us in the back. Um, there was one, I felt very touching um, branch secretary in the Midlands who wrote back and said, we, of our 140-odd members, 123 are at the front, three have been killed and 
umpteen others have been seriously injured, and now you want us to fight your war for you. But why, why wasn't know? an anti-conscription campaign in Britain? I mean, why didn't they have their own anti-conscription campaign? Well, I think it's part of national identity that people... Right. Uh, there was, an, there was, an, there was <coughs> a pacifist movement, there was an anti-war movement, which was growing in strength. But I think the, one thing that really strikes you, I think, if you look at the First World War, two countries, or three, three countries, France, Britain, and Germany, um, there was very little fracturing in the sort of national solidarity. Yeah, yeah. There was a very strong sense of identity with the with the government or with the state or with the victory that we want we want we have to win this war in ireland there wasn't and if you look i think one of the reasons why russia collapsed was there was no strong identification with the Tsar or with moscow mm -hmm. there were so many countries i mean for only 40 percent of the russian empire were russians um so i think that those sort of things were, were important and in ireland they're important and we can see it in the north south divide i mean unlike now with greater unity between north, in, in the north there was very, very divided labour movement. Just before we go on to that, which is a very interesting t topic, I, I just in case I missed this right, what about the view that the intention was never to actually introduce conscription, but this was just a PR job to modify <laughs> British public opinion? Anyone, any, any views on that? I mean, well, it's true, and uh, I think it's very interesting when T.P. O'Connor, who was a sort of a, one of the key backroom people liaising between the Irish party, John Dillon and uh, Joe Devlin here, and... Uh, Lloyd George in, in, and the, the, the cabinet members, he said to Lloyd George, if you, in, you, you realise if you introduced conscription to Ireland, 100 people could be killed, 100 men could be killed or whatever. And Lloyd George said, uh, I don't, we, the Irish electorate doesn't care if 10,000 were killed because their sons are being killed in those sort of numbers every day of the week. So there was no, they'd run out of patience, they were desperate uh, to get men. Uh, but I think you're right, I think there was... You, you do wonder, was it ever really seriously uh, considered? Because there was no real plan put in place. And I thought Tom was very interested about the police. And in fact, when the, the Irish Trade Union Congress was the only body to actually come up with a detailed plan for passive resistance. But one of the key elements in that was that we should try to win over the civil service and the police uh, to our side. And we should tell them that if you, if you side with us, we guarantee we'll support you in return to get your jobs back. And if you can compare that with 1919, when Collins decides we better pick off the, the G-men and the, mm -hmm. the police in, in the RIC who are on, on the other side, uh, and, the boy, and the national boycott of the RIC, it's a very different mentality and it changes mm -hmm. it very mm -hmm. quickly. Mm -hmm. it does. Yeah. So, uh, this, and this brings, okay, let's go on to the question of the, the you know, working class Protestants in, in the North, right? I mean, the point is their political leaders, Carson, etc., is, is demanding more conscription. Yeah. I mean, why did these people support that point of view? I just, it always because strikes it wasn't me as... Going to affect them. What's um, that? It, it wasn't going to affect them. They were the, like the so, ASC. Yeah, yeah. The reserve position. The, the reserve position. They, you see, it, when the war broke out, a lot of people joined the British Army, and then they found they, one of the big shortages, funny enough, was in the small arms industry, and it was very highly skilled. So they had to take men back from the front and replaced them with unskilled workers. And the interesting thing called the badge, badge system, mm. which uh, meant if you had a badge, you couldn't be touched. So if you worked in a shipyard, for example, or a railway, you couldn't be touched. If you look at the records of the Great Southern and yep. Western Railway, yep. for example, you'll see um, the directors are offering them hundreds of clerks and uh, ticket uh, you know, collectors, but, but you're not getting any engineers, you're not getting yeah. any locomotive drivers. Yeah. Uh, we need them to run the railways. And the British understood that. So ironically enough, in the North, you had uh, the majority of the skilled workers in those protected industries could support the war uh, because they were getting to get 
war bonuses out of it. They were going to get more money out of it. Um, it was going to be the unskilled who would have to go to the front. So there was that divide there as well. And and because they had to, they also knew that the only hope they had of avoiding home rule was to show they were more patriotic than anybody else. Mm. And therefore, the British couldn't abandon them to these. He's an Irish. Or so you're saying identity politics trumped everything else. Absolutely. In a sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, this, I mean, uh, this brings us on to the, the question mark in the title of this, uh, this uh, d discussion here this evening. I mean, to what extent was this campaign being led by the IT, you know, the, by the labour movement, right? Um, or to what extent was it being led by the church? Tom? By both, I think. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, actually, I, I forgot to mention the, the political parties. Right? We'll, we'll, thank you, thank you, Marcus, for reminding me. Uh, well, the bishops came out, of course, against conscription before the uh, before 1918. They'd made a statement against it, um, so it, it was kind of known that, that where they where they stood as regards conscription generally, mm. um, but. Um, as, as regards the actual rallying point for mm. against the um, uh, against the Conscription Act, well, it, it, if it comes through Lawrence O'Neill and he, he became a, a main figure in it, that goes back to the Dublin City Council, mm. who uh, requested him to form a, a union of the whole of Ireland, um, and they, they mentioned a number of political leaders he should contact: John Dillon, De Valera. Um, and um, the uh, the trade uh, trade union movement, and um, those ones particularly, he widened it then to bring in um, Tim Healy and Will, William O'Brien MP, because he felt that the the group wouldn't be full without them. <coughs> um, so th that was the, the the nucleus on which he had to sort of uh, to build, but he was quite convinced already uh, before that date. He had sent out. Uh, telegrams to William O'Brien of Mallow and then to William O'Brien here in Dublin, the trade unions, telling them that it was very important that you get the church on your side. So, so I missed that. Who, who sent out these telegrams at all? Oh, well, Lawrence O'Neill. Okay, right, the, the Lord Mayor of Dublin. Yeah. Lord Mayor of Dublin. And uh, he's becoming a kind of a central figure uh, so that at one meeting uh, when when they had all got together and he'd managed to get them together, um, it became known then as the the uh, the, the Irish cabinet, and uh, at one of the general meetings, somebody shouted out O'Neill, next president of Ireland. Mm. So he was that central at the time, and uh, he was one of the people who was instrumental, I think, in getting working with Dr. Walsh to to bring about that union of church and 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 country uh, against conscription. Now, um, Walsh is a very. You want me to go into Walsh? Yeah, dude. Yeah, because uh, yeah. See, I'm, 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 I'm hoping you're going to give us you're going to give us the inside track, Tom, on how the church actually wields influence. Right? <laughs> That's quite an interesting hearing. How does it work? It only it only wields influence uh, on the wider scale if it's linked in with politics. Mm. That's a, that's an Irish history now, 19th century into the 20th century, and um, people like Walsh became a, a very powerful figure because he was one of those who supported the Land League, um, himself and the uh, the Archbishop of Cashel, um, Croke. And um, the two of those were reprimanded by Rome, by Rome because of 
the fact that they seem to be going against private ownership and so forth. And um, it's often said that uh, that uh, Walsh didn't get the red get, didn't get the red hat eventually because of his position on the Land League. Um, his position on the Land League also meant that he was strongly opposed by the British government in Rome uh, in their efforts to prevent him becoming Archbishop of Dublin. So he had all that sort of political background as well. Uh, he became a very revered figure nationally. And um, you find someone like de Valera saying after, after Walsh's death, unfortunately he died before the Civil War, saying that, that Dr. Walsh was my mentor in, the, in my early years. And, um, you know, it raised the question if Walsh had lived whether it been a civil war. But however... Um, so, Tom, just remind me, when did he become Archbishop of Dublin? He became Archbishop of Dublin, I think it was in 86. Oh, so he's there a long time. He's well, a long time, in the 1880s. <coughs> right. And um, he was... It's important to remember about Walsh that he was an extraordinarily able man. He was a very good mathematician, uh, a brilliant musician, um, and wrote letters to the paper on a regular basis, so much so that James Joyce calls him Billy the Lip, as he was constantly seemed to be pouring things out. And um, no matter what the topic was, he seemed to be, knew, knew a great deal about it and was prepared to argue about it in the press. And the arguments would go on for, for days at times. He, he, he sounds like a guy would have his own Twitter feed if he was around today. Yes, unfortunately. It, uh, <laughs> it, uh, don't put him in the same league. Tomanis, you want, there's a radio mic there, Manus, if you use it, because this, this has been recorded, by the way, uh, and it'll, it'll go up on our, our, uh, our website as a podcast. <laughs> just, yeah, it's, just, it's on the way. It's, it's coming. Way. Someone <laughs> should fail there. Come on. Not as quick as I was, uh, it shouldn't be forgotten, too, that uh, while Walsh might have been nationally minded to push uh, the issue with, uh, in a way that other bishops mightn't have, there was the vested interest of the church came into play because conscription was initially intended to apply to clergymen. They were not exempted until the very last uh, day of the debate in the House of Commons. Uh, and they were exempted, not because the Catholic Church objected, but because the Welsh Nonconformists objected. But that still left clerical students liable to conscription. So in terms of an institution itself, uh, the Church uh, had a reason to be opposed to conscription. Uh, a more nationally minded Archbishop like Walsh twisted the arm of his fellow bishops on that issue because he would have been opposed to it anyhow. But I think that institution consideration was at, at, at play as well. Fair point, very point. And so, uh, there is another factor, by the way, about Walsh and the war. That Walsh, Walsh spent most of his summers cycling in the continent and going throughout Germany and Austria from one opera house to the other. But he became very friendly and a great admirer of the Austrians and the Germans. So he considered a lot of the propaganda against the Germans during the war as sheer propaganda and... Uh, it's just to suit the British, the British side. We should not forget that even though his own brother was interned by the Germans, James Joyce uh, was contemptuous of the British uh, propaganda. He says about the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, where he spent some of his happiest times living in Trieste, they called it a ramshackle empire. Would that there were more such empires. Mm -hmm. <laughs> later, could, of course. Could, could I just say as yeah, well that on the, on the Severnarian thing, 
Uh, one of the very first things they did in maintenance was they rounded up all the seminarians, got them to sign the anti-conscription pledge, and then sent them all home because they were afraid the British were going to raid and take them all away. <laughs> Eugene, yeah. I'm just Eugene McEldowney. Um I'm really enjoying this, actually. I must say, full marks to everybody involved. Um, there's a couple of little things come through my mind here. Um, first of all, how big a deal was conscription? Now, I, I know a little bit. I know that conscri conscription was introduced in the American Civil War by the federal government. Lincoln brought in conscription, and it led to ructions. There was riots in New York. Mm. 500 people were killed, A lot of, mainly black people, actually. By Irish people. By Irish people, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, um, first of all, were there any other... Was this a kind of a, a completely... Uh, new means of raising an army, or have they, you know, anybody else had tried, the French, or anybody else tried it? The other, the other thing is, I wonder if Pori could touch on, just briefly, if you could, Pori, this uh, dispute between the, uh, the, the, the nationalist women who were anti-conscription, and the separation women, you touch on it briefly, and, and, uh, so basically that's, yeah. if you could give me a little bit more information on that. Well, conscription was long established in, in Europe, They've been fighting using conscription for generations. They're, they're land-based powers. The land-based, yes. The French, the Germans, the Russians, and so on. But in, Ireland, in Britain, no, they always had a volunteer army, uh, and they used to use... Uh, they relied basically on the Navy and, and financial subsidies. And, and the press, gang, the press gang people into the Navy. That's right. <laughs> so for, in, the old days, anyway. in the old days, if you lived near a port or in a port. And also, uh, the British had a huge merchant uh, marine. Over half the old merchant marine vessels in the world it, at, the, at the beginning of the 20th century were British flagged and they had a huge fishing fleet so they had a huge they had huge reserves for that but um, in terms of conscription yeah it was totally new it was totally alien to British let alone Irish um, you know traditions and it took until 1916 for the British to accept that they had to bring in conscription uh, any other system was unfair so 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 that that's the case uh, one of the points on the actual, uh, I just think that would you want to fight next to someone who'd been conscripted <laughs> sometimes? Like that some some historians have made that point that um, actually a lot of the people that were on the front were wondering if I have someone next to me who really doesn't want to be here, how's that, how's that going to work? Um, on the separation women, I don't know, do you want to, I always feel like... Mm -hmm. I, my being a defender a of the separation women, women right. in Irish history, I suppose, from a feminist perspective, the allowance was, you know, quite, uh, quite amazing, really. Um, that term that it was the, the surrogate husband and just in Galway, it was larger than the average industrial wage. And it, it really was for many women the first time they were controlling this type of budget. So I always feel very... Um, defensive of the separation women, the way they were described often in the press. Um, uh, not just because a lot of, you know, Cork women were described as drunkards, but, you know, in general, uh, I feel like they deserve a bit yeah. of a, a defense. Well, well, there, there is a very telling figure, so there's a very telling figure, uh, as you know, in the mm. National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And if you look at those figures uh, during the war, uh, 
cases of cruelty, which would include things like malnutrition, that wasn't just beating children, it was general deprivation. Figures for cruelty uh, in, in Ireland fell dramatically during the First World War, uh, and then rose again afterwards, uh, slowly, and never reached the same peak as beforehand. But it, that was generally attributed to the much higher living standards, particularly in places like Dublin. Uh, and in fact, in Dublin, in the North, they did a very detailed survey, the Council of uh, the Northeast side of Dublin, uh, and uh, they found that um, the second main source of income in the tenements after general labourers was uh, dependency on the British armed forces for, for livelihood. So it actually, as, you, as Sarah Allen says, I mean, the, the, it actually represented a significant increase in living standards for those families because the biggest mouth in the family was away at the front. Um, if, if he died, it was actually quite a blessing financially because it was worth 13 and 6 uh, to the wife. She'd get that for perpetuity. Um, it was a disaster in a way when he came home because, A, he might be unfit to work, uh, either psychologically or, or physically or both, and, B, he didn't have a job to come home to. So families that actually were relatively well off during the war in Dublin uh, were worse off after independence. And we talk about unemployment amongst uh, Irish volunteers being about 50% in Dublin. It was about the same amongst ex-servicemen. Um, mm -hmm. So the, it was a major, major problem in Dublin. But coming back to the Irish women, what about the Protestant women and the number of those who, who tried to oppose conscription and mm -hmm. uh, gathered together to go to a, have their prayer service in the, mm -hmm. in the um, great, our great Protestant cathedral? Christchurch. Christ, was, I think it was Christchurch, yeah. or was it Patrick's? And uh, they found the door shut in their spray, in their face, and they conducted their service outside in the rain. Mm. And eventually the door opened, and the, the, the man who opened it said, what's this all about? And they gave him one of the leaflets, the anti-conscription leaflets, and he tore it up, and he said, nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. Mm. So, you know, these were women like Alice Topford Green yeah. was among them, quite a number of distinguished uh, people who did, you know, were very strong yeah. in, the, in the movement for freedom one way or another. Well, Alice Stopford Green was the chairperson mm. of the uh, Lawn Amon, the IWWU, yeah. and was very active. Um, I do think that, you know, it obviously, as you say, it's a generalisation to see that there's, to say there's a split between the, the Unionist and the Nationalist women. The Protestant women, obviously, is, is another factor. I think that what it shows is some tensions there in uh, the, the movement for suffrage or female suffrage. I think you can see tensions at this time. And that's, that's interesting to me, uh, particularly because there seems to be other groups that are managing to gloss over some of these uh, previous tensions. Um, but no, at, like Alice Stafford Greenman, a lot of the Protestant women are, so, are very involved. Very much involved, yeah. yeah just one little... Eugene, yeah, use the mic again there, Eugene. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, if my memory serves... I I think when the um, when Lincoln and the, the the federal government in America introduced conscription, there was a clause in it where you could actually buy yourself out if you could get. Yeah. I think it was five hundred dollars or two hundred dollars. You buy somebody to take your place. Mm. Um, quite interesting, isn't it? You die instead of me. <laughs> well, I even think with, with Australia, what they do with the second referendum is they say it's not going to be married men, so they realise that. You know, so it's going to be uh, widowers, single men, um, because they realise that uh, you know a lot of the the propaganda from the anti-conscription side has been 
about married men. So you can see the tactics that even are, are changing about how to, I suppose, and some of that is to, to win the women as well, because many of the women are, are uh, anti-war, not just anti-conscription. Now, I'm just going to have the time here, and we, I, we've hardly mentioned the political parties uh, here, like Sinn Féin and the Irish uh, Parliamentary Party. I mean, what's Sinn Féin's position on this? I mean, are they actively involved in this? Are they, are they sort of sitting back and admiring this from afar, if you like, right? Or, Parik, what's their, what's their attitude on, no, on this? No, they were leading the charge. I mean, one of the questions I think is interesting is, uh, why did the Labour movement leave it to Sinn Féin? Uh, Labour waited in the conscription crisis rather than in later on. It was too late then. Mm. Um, and I think it comes back to Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien was very close to people in Sinn Féin. Uh, he was probably a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood at that stage. But Tom Johnson and David Campbell in Belfast actually organised the first mobilisation of workers against conscription uh, at the very beginning of, of the, uh, the introduction of the bill, uh, even before it became law. Uh, but Bill O'Brien was president of Congress at the time, and he basically took a decision. According to his own witness statement, he got Cahill O'Shannon, who was a union organiser, was also in the IRB, to make contact with Sinn Féin and to ask Sinn Féin, would you go in with the Irish party and with the AOH or whatever you're having yourself to form a united front? Um, and the word came back, yeah. So he wanted, he was willing to allow Sinn Féin to take the lead and then they would come in afterwards. And he was very revealing the phrase he uses. He said, if Sinn Féin could get away with working with the Irish party, so could we. So, but he felt he couldn't, they, Labour couldn't do it on their own. So he subordinated effectively the Labour Party to Sinn Féin at that point, and I now, think that was a critical Parik, moment. I have to come in back to you yeah. about your, your original comment about James Connolly, right? Mm. You, you talk about his organisational weakness, mm. right? Fair enough. Mm. But what about the view that it, this wouldn't have happened under Connolly, that he mightn't have been great yeah. at organising, but he could provide robust political leadership, which is a different, yeah, a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. So no, was that, yeah. that the, the, yeah. if I might put it this way, what you had was this, this machine there, but the, the, no, the, no, the no, autonomous yeah, you're right. brain, yeah. you know, uh, working class, you know, But Connolly and Larkin were, if you like, leaders in that sense. Um, Bill O'Brien, for all his ability, uh, was a follower, I think. And I think the same could be said of all of them. They were all deferential. When it came to the crunch, Tom Johnson or any of that group would step back and allow others uh, to take the lead. And there was no question but Sinn Féin were making the running. The Irish party had to follow Sinn Féin and adopt an abstentionist policy because they voted against the bill, uh, the only people who did, and then they walked out, they left. But they were effectively following the lead of, uh, of Sinn Féin. So I, I think it's no doubt but de Valera uh, did take the lead. As, as, uh, as Tom says, I mean, Willie Walsh was a very shrewd operator. And at one stage, uh, de Valera was on the run in the uh, Archbishop's, in the lodge of the Archbishop's Palace, uh, which was very convenient because he could then have cups of tea with the Archbishop. This young man could then be guided <laughs> well, they never, on the, never met the Archbishop. Well, they, they, they say they never Curran. met. They met with Curran, Curran. who was... Walsh couldn't afford to... No, to but, but Curran to was the, the messenger boy, as he was, uh, yeah, yeah. As he was with Larry O'Neill and with, with... And a very able messenger boy he was. Uh, <laughs> and it's a pity he had to go to Rome when well, he did. It was did. very interesting. He was very anti-1913. Uh, anti yeah. mm, yeah. Curran was, whereas yeah. Walsh wasn't. Yeah. Uh, mm. it, was the, it was the uh, reverse mm. and uh, Curran's letters about 1916 
1922 yeah. while she was in the mm. continent at the time. Uh, they were really quite anti-workers. And um, Walsh then is writing to him and send, saying, mm. or telegramming him and saying, send out the Irish worker to me. So he was keeping au fait with whatever Larkin was saying. Yeah. You know. uh, I, th I thought one though, stroke of genius by Walsh, uh, was one of the things he pushed, and the Catholic Church pushed was that the parish was a natural organisation or unit to resist conscription. And that they got the, the National Committee to agree that 90% of all the funds should be kept locally because that's where the battle would take place. Um, so when the whole thing was wound up, and the Dáil Éireann government went looking for the money uh, that had been collected locally. It had all been spent on ecclesiastical purposes mm -hmm. because it wasn't needed any. Well, it was it? Or was it an uncharitable organisation? No, it was ecclesiastical purposes or charities. Ecclesiastical charities. Ah, that's different. It was the only charity. <laughs> the only charities. The only charities there were. Where, 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 where church ones? Well, there was the NSPCC, yeah, yeah. and uh, there were loads of Salvation uh, Army. Yep, Salvation. There were a lot of Protestant charities too. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> we're going. <laughs> just, uh, I'm just. Well, keep no, no, don't forget now the conscription yeah. movement is by and large the majority mm. population. Mm. You know, mm. and so why would they be supporting? Well, other yeah. charities that weren't well, well, in, 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 in practical terms, of course, because it was a lot of people paying very small amounts, it didn't make sense for the parish priest to be going around trying to find everybody who gave him money. But I think it is interesting. It's probably a loss that if, if the allegedly two million people mm. signed the pledge, there's a list in that the Carmelites have with maybe four or five hundred on it. There's one in Waterford with about six hundred names. There's Maynooth, um again with a, maybe two hundred names on it. Mm. Uh, but all the rest seemed to have vanished. And I think one of the reasons is they were kept by the parish priests because even on the day of the strike, uh, a lot of the meetings were addressed by the clergy um, and all the, pretty well all the books uh, were, were kept by the clergy. So I suspect they were just put in a cupboard somewhere and thrown out when the whole thing was over. I think so. Yeah. And, which is a great pity because it would have been a great we, social we have document. A, we have a very poor yeah. national record mm. on keeping records yeah. and particularly yeah. parish records. Well, other head school, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just want to remind everyone we're, we're coming towards the end here now. So, if you want to get a question in, uh, you know, don't don't make it like a sing song where everybody wants to get in at the end, right? Um, I just want to quote something, Porrick. This is in your uh, article in, in History Ireland. This is uh, from the, the Voice of Labour, uh, just at the time of the general strike, and this was an open letter to the English Labour Party, uh, and it bemoaned the quote the malign fate that links our nations. And it accused the leaders, quote, the leaders of the English working class of indifference to Irish labour, whose very existence you have ignored. For when you have sought to learn aught of Ireland, you have made inquiries of our governors and masters. Before the Socialist International, we denounce you, traitors to our common cause, false to our own people, accomplices in oppression of the Irish race. Pretty strong stuff. Ed, any comments on that? Like, if... if, if um, the ICTU come out with a statement like that. Today. <laughs> um, how would it go down? You know? Yeah, well, I, I, just going back to my earlier comments, I think we've travelled a long distance <laughs> um, since then. Thankfully, you know, thankfully yeah. we have. Um, can I just say, because I mightn't come in again, that um, I think within the trade union movement, the, the strike is perceived to have been a phenomenal organisational success. 
Um, that's that's certainly kind of the consensus opinion. I think the Irish Times uh, writing about the the strike um, said that it was the f the first real manifestation of the power of of labour. Um, and many of us who work within trade unionism today, I suppose, are astounded by the quick turnaround in the strike. The special delegate conference is on the twentieth. Mm. The strike is on the twenty third. You wouldn't get away with that under uh, industrial relations law today. But um, yeah, I suppose that's my. Mm. final yeah. thought on it. But again, you're back to this dilemma that it's organisationally brilliant, mm. but then it, it doesn't go anywhere. I mean, Porrick, in your article, the implication seems to be that the um, the fact that it, it was so uh, fully supported by the church, in a sense, devalued it in some way. And I may have got you wrong on that, right? No, well, it didn't it, it, it enhanced it. It was a question mark over it, its radicalness or yeah, whatever. It, right? it, it yeah. enhanced it within nationalist Ireland, but it certainly devalued it elsewhere. Um, in, in other words, in the North. Uh, you've also got to remember that in the, the Irish, the British Labour Party mm. really only came into existence in the decade before the First World War, and they were almost tutored by the Irish Party. So people like Arthur Henderson, for example, who were quite progressive in a lot of things, their view of Ireland was based on what the Irish Party told them, what mm. the John Dillons and Joe Devlins of the world told them. So they were getting a completely false idea of what was going on in Ireland. Uh, and in fact, they said quite bluntly to the P.T. Daly, I think, when he was secretary of the ITUC, he said, when you start getting MPs elected to Parliament, we'll pay attention to you. But until then, we're going to listen to what the Irish party tell us. So uh, there, was, there was a huge disconnect. But in the North, I think it was certainly a tragedy. And interestingly enough, we talk about Labour must wait. In 1918, Labour did not wait in Belfast. In, in 1918, the Irish Labour Party, if you like, want a better word, um, ran two candidates. And the Irish and the Independent Labour Party ran two candidates. They all lost, but they all polled fairly respectably, and they all lost to Ulster Unionist Labour candidates mm -hmm. who ran against. They were head to head. Working class districts like Victoria or Shanko um, or Cromac, they were they were they were wiped out by the Ulster Unionists. But the divide was there. They 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 ignored totally what happened there in 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 Dublin. And when the ITUC conference was held after the strike in August. The only debate behind closed doors was about conscription. And some of that even leaked out a bit. And Campbell was attacked. Why did you uh, not sign the anti-conscription pledge? And so was Bennett, who, um, and it's a lot more complicated than that, but uh, Bennett was particularly strong on that. He said, we're not begging to be here. He said, if you don't want us here, uh, that's up to you. We're not begging to stay in this Congress. Uh, and he also said that, um, you know, we didn't sign the pledge because you were being manipulated by others. Now, we didn't say who the others were, but it's clearly mentioned Fein and the Catholic Church and the ancient order of Hibernian. So th that disconnect was there, and then it was perpetuated, of course, by partition. Well, Manus, yeah. Well, I could be give one simple sentence, but I'll say a bit more. It's called Two Nations. <laughs> there were two nations and, uh, and two national movements. And uh, in fact, what, what the strength of the anti-conscription uh, movement was that it was the whole nation united. That's what horrified the Irish Times editorials. Uh, they saw Labour as the cutting edge for that particular day of action. But what they saw uh, united against uh, their warmongering was a whole nation. Uh, the Catholic Church was denounced for making intolerable claims. The actual anti-conscription movement was referred to by the Irish Times as a declaration of war on England. So a movement that was, 
to keep out of the war was described as making war and should be responded accordingly by firm government and no constitutional change whatsoever. So that was the viewpoint of those who represented uh, Britain's interests in, in Ireland. Uh, on the other side of it, of course, I mean, the reference is made to the, uh, the, the Catholic Church. The, the Protestant Archbishop of Dublin, Bernard, you quoted yourself in your book as, as uh, insisting that they were in support of conscription and they were going to do their duty voluntarily, even ahead of, of, of conscription. Uh, but it, it could, not have been, uh, could not have been otherwise than that. Uh, and to, to dilute the national movement aspect of it was flying in the face of the historical momentum that was taking place. The other aspect of it, uh, the labour won't wait issue, it came up at the, at, at, at the, the, uh, the celebration in the Mansion House a few days ago, of the Mansion House declaration where uh, De Valera said labour uh, must wait. He never said that. Labour decided to wait. Why did it decide to wait? They didn't need to wait. Uh, Harry Boland was negotiating with, with Cotillo Shannon that you can, see, don't forget there was no PR there. So if there's a national movement looking for self-determination, you weren't going to uh, split the vote if at all possible. Uh, Sinn Féin was prepared to say, we'll stand aside and let you Labour take the seats, except Labour uh, beyond, uh, over and above Carlo Shannon was not pre prepared to pledge itself to set up an independent oil air in the event of that general election succeeding. So they pulled back because they didn't know what way to jump on abstentionism and an independent oil. But isn't it true also that Tom McPartland at one stage there, in, during that discussion, raised the point, you know, in point of fact, if we try and, and, and go along independent labour, uh, most of our supporters are going to vote Sinn Féin. Yeah. Mm. Because they were caught up yeah. in the national yeah. movement. Yeah. 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 But I think just on the two nations thing, I think it is interesting, without the Protestant working class in Belfast, there would have been no effective Ulster Unionist movement. It would have been like the Southern Unionists. It would have been a top-heavy sort of yeah. aristocracy. Yeah. Uh, but it was the it was working class that gave them, yeah. you know, their weight. Now, I just pouring. I want to take another quote from your article in History Ireland. You you say that on the same day as the strike was taking place, um, the Archbishop was convening a meeting to quote combat Bolshevism, anarchy, and republicanism. Yeah, that's right. Tom, what's he up to? I mean, what's... <laughs> you better give me that quote again. He says, it was, it, 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 it was a meeting, probably you can fill this yeah, in the deals, yeah. to combat Bolshevism, anarchy, and republicanism. I mean, the general strike against the shipping seems to fit all those. <laughs> what date was that? Possibly. What date was that? Right. Well, the, again, Tom made... The, I was looking through the Archbishop's laity files that, uh, and the priest's files because I looked at them then mm. when I couldn't find anything. But he called this meeting of sort of all the senior clergy in the archdiocese. When, though? On the 23rd, the day of the strike. But there's no record of the meeting ever hap having happened. But there, is, uh, there are records of intense activity uh, within the Catholic Church um, based on the huge attendance at Mass. Because what happened was in Dublin, every single union gathered at its headquarters and then marched to a designated church where most of the members had Mass and Holy Communion. So I, I reckon what happened was all these uh, Monsignors and parish priests or whatever were so busy giving Mass out to trade unionists as communicants, they didn't have time to meet to discuss how to stop them becoming anarchists or Republicans <laughs> or, or socialists. You know? The Women Workers Union marched to could I just, they, they, didn't, they didn't go could to Could I just church. remind you that <laughs> William O'Brien had, had said to all the the uh, union delegates, 
whatever we're going to do here, we're going to face intimidation. We're probably going to face death. It's better to die at home than to die on the battlefield. But the chances were a lot of those people were going to confession, first of all, before that's communion, right. because they were scared of their life. They were going, I might face death. Sure. So, you know, that's the other side of the reality. No, okay, my point in, in quoting that, though, is, though, what are the motives uh, of the church and of the Archbishop in particular, Tom, in your opinion? He would certainly be very nervous about Bolshevism. Yeah. So would everyone, actually at the time that knew about it, uh, as it was operating in Russia. Um, so uh, I'm not surprised to find that, you know, and also the, the sort of propaganda that was going around about Bolshevism right through the early, early years of the 20th century um, was very negative. So churchmen, uh, Bolshevism associated being anti-religion, not at this stage, though, surely. I mean, they, they weren't overtly anti-clerical at this stage. Hmm? Boring, not the, no, and what, what was coming out of Russia was very confusing. Uh, there were, I know, and I, I'm uh, talking about yeah. much earlier. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, right, well, this was 1918. If, if, if you look at the literature, mm. yeah. uh, from the early years of the 20th century, mm. and uh, the talk about Bolshevism and socialism in inverted commas as being very anti-Christian, anti-Catholic, um, that's taken very often as an umbrella term in a point of fact, there's a whole lot of Christian socialists, as you know, operating both in Britain and in Ireland. Um, so Bolshevism is, has a bad name. It's the worst uh, example of terrorism against the church, as, uh, as it's interpreted at the time, my reading anyway. The second, um, what I'm worried about there is the republicanism. What is meant by that? Well, that's... I'm just quoting what's in the Because we didn't have yeah. an Irish Republic at that time. No, but we had republicanism, yeah. um, as we had in the 19th century. Oh, so it's the IRB, basically. No, it says, the wording is, I think, anarchism, uh, republicanism, and Bolshevism. Uh, I think in that order. Um, Bolshevism was the last one on the list, but probably the most worrying one. Yeah, what do but they mean? Do they mean uh, the IRB? They, they, they basically meant radical, the Irish radical opinion. What uh, is the Republican? The only one, mm -hmm. Irish Republican Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. So when you think of the well, word Republic... Well, uh, an Irish Republic had been proclaimed in 1916. No, Republicanism, I think, you have to accept... Continental Republicanism, I think. <laughs> Anti-clerical. Yeah. Anti-clerical. Una, have you got the mic there? Yeah. Just on the way, Fergus. Whenever the Irish Catholics thought at the time of the national movement, right, the Roman Catholic Church had over a hundred years of experience of fighting republicanism. They were enemies of republicanism from the time of the French Revolution. Yeah. No, the point I'm getting at by, French by, by, by quoting that is, though, that's true. Is uh, the, the question of the motivation of the Archbishop? I mean, you use the. Uh, in your article, what was it, the, 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 the wise, the, the wise the, serpent, the wise serpent. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, which is the archbishop, yeah, yeah. and uh, the, the, the sheep in sheep's clothing, which is the trade union movement. Uh, well, the, is yeah, the sheep in wolf's Very story. flattering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but That's the point of getting to What's that? Scripture, by the way. What? That's a quotation. I, 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 I know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so your issue is that how no, they my point agree is, with each is, other on is, this. Yeah, is... Are their motives, you know, genuine, or is this a cynical manoeuvre on the part of the church to, to uh, get control of this possibly Bolshevik 
possibly republican, possibly anarchist movement? Uh, quite honestly, I, we, we, we're, we're looking back into history from a different point of view. We're seeing Bolshevism, anarchism, republicanism as very strong entities. At the time, they would have been something peripheral, offering danger on the sidelines, but not a not a not a, a major danger to to either the country or the church. I think that would have been the the mentality of the time. Mm. Um, and uh, okay, Walsh is a very canny character and a very very shrewd sort of character. I agree, and um, is. As wise as a serpent and as gentle as a lamb and all that. Well, I was going to say to you, Parry, yeah. you can't blame him for being successful. No, and according I, to his own no, lights. As Tom you know. says, I, I agree with them that if the, if Walsh had lived and had been in good health, which he wasn't no. um, when he died in 1920, but if he had been in good wa- house um, or 1921, so he he um, there wouldn't have been a civil war. He would have he would have sorted it because he's a great man for finding the key issues and getting people to agree, as he did on conscription, and to get Cardinal Logue. And there's some great stories which Tom knows about. Uh, Walsh, like the one about the the the, the bishop, local bishop uh, down in down the lock, very worried about young curates riding around on bicycles and bringing the church into disrepute and eventually he nags and nags Walsh and eventually Walsh has to meet him and he arrives at the big at the red house and he meets the young curate wheeling a bicycle and he <laughs> immediately you know he beats Walsh riding a bicycle no no, no he met a, a no no it was more subtle than that he he met a, a curate not riding one but pushing a bicycle and he asked him the man know what he was doing and he said he was putting away the archbishop's bicycle so, <laughs> so he meant that, that they I've, never discussed the bicycles when they got into having uh, a cup yeah, of tea. that's <laughs> the other version of that story oh, it, is that he meets Walsh riding the bicycle <laughs> Well, Walsh was a great bicycle yeah. rider. Yeah. He wore out the pedals so in, in, his, in his bikes in Europe. Started the fashion amongst the country. Now, I just, I'm just going to put out one last call for any questions because I, I'm going to wrap up here. If anyone else wants to come in from the, from the audience, uh, I'm just going to go up the panel then um, and look at you know the, the, who were the winners and losers out of all of this. Maybe Ethel, from the point of view of the trade union movement historically. What Patrick said, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian, but. Uh, Podrick said that the branches of unions all marched to churches. The Irish Women Workers Union didn't mm, march to no. a church, they marched yeah. to City Hall. So from, from and I take Tom's point that we're looking back from a different, you know, the, we're, we're, we're looking at all this from our own perspective now, but I would have thought that that reflects a certain way on the, the Irish Women Workers Union. Um, and I, I think the trade union movement um, is a bit of a winner in it. Obviously, based on the figures, uh, in the membership growth of the transport union, it's a good year for the transport union. It nearly triples its membership that year. So uh, that can't be seen, but uh, to be a good thing. Tom, what about the, from the point of view of the Catholic Church and the Archbishop? Um, I don't know, I haven't thought about that. Uh, well, I suppose w- work, you know? Walsh would have been pleased himself. That uh, There's a distinction between Logue and Walsh, by the way. I mean, yeah. Logue would be far more Unionist in, in, in his te- in his tendency, um, whereas Walsh would have seen that as a, as a, as a success, and also perhaps he would have welcomed the fact that it it led to a weakening in the Irish Party. He mm. had been very critical of the corruption in the Irish Party, and as you know, in the 1917 election or by-election in Monaghan, wasn't it, um, that he came out the night before and mm. supported the. 
the Sinn Féin candidates in saying long, the country Longford. has been sold. Yeah. You know. Sarah, what, what about the, yeah. the, the, like, the, the two political parties, uh, okay, Sinn Féin and the... And the, and the oh, okay, that, right, party. I was going to take the women. Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> I feel more qualified to talk about... Like, one thing I haven't really brought... Like, the idea of women's only days or movements, to me, are quite interesting. Um, and obviously this year is the year that suffrage is granted to certain women and 36% of the enlarged electorate are women. And yet, uh, yeah, we have the results of the 1918 election. So I think it's important to see it in that broader kind of uh, spectrum or that broader kind of 1918 generally. Um, I suppose, though, for the... Irish Parliamentary Party, they are they. You would not say they're winners. <laughs> yeah, well, but they're the big losers. I mean, the point is they they're they're in a hiding of nothing because they're obviously originally supporters of the war. I mean, mm-hmm. we've already teased out the difference between supporting the war and supporting conscription. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, it's very it's a very difficult uh, wicket to bat on uh, if you you were. Asked well, I think how people. it even comes up, like it's been mentioned, but it's very hastily brought <coughs> up, and there isn't much, or there doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion with the IPP in Parliament at the time, it, you know, it is that question, it almost comes full circle when you're talking about the anti-conscription movement as to how it was brought forward in the first place. Pauline, maybe I'll, go to, I'll pitch the, the final question to you then, in terms of winners or losers, you know, mm. say Sinn Féin and the Labour movement, I mean the Labour Party uh, politi- as a political party mm. as opposed mm. to the trade union movement. Mm. How did that, does that pan out? Well, well, they were one and the same because the Irish Labour Party was set up by the Trade Union Congress and at that stage they were calling themselves the Labour Party and Trade Union Congress in the expectation of fighting an election. Um, it, as Ethel says, when it, the movement was immensely strengthened um, as a result of the anti-conscription campaign, uh, but it was subsumed, if you like, within the national, the Catholic, if you like, nationalist, pan-nationalist um, alliance uh, to assert nas- you know, national independence. It was very different from the North and it was very different from Britain. In Britain, while there was growing anti-war sentiment, uh, there was never any question of the, of the British Labour movement not recognising the legitimacy of the British state and saying we're going to overthrow the government and we're going to set up England, Scotland, Wales are all going to have separate Soviet republics or something. It never reached that that stage. In Ireland it did. So um, it was part of the, the development of a nation uh, as a Catholic nation. And I think, again, um, if you go back, people like Walsh uh, ensured it was a Catholic nation because they claimed ownership of a lot of the struggle on the land, uh, people's rights, uh, and so on. The one area, of course, where they didn't agree was on women's rights. Um, and the Irish, one, one of the nails in the Irish party's coffin was their refusal to support female suffrage. It was one of the things that alienated a lot of people, uh, men as well as women. So uh, it, Ireland was changing in very dramatic ways, uh, but it was also staying the same. Right. Okay, I, I'm going to wrap up there. Um, I think we've, we've, we've interrogated this subject from many, many different uh, angles. Um, just one or two. Mm-hmm. And-